Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Hit Like a Girl podcast is a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. One thing I love about working with them is that they're mission-driven, which means that they're dedicated to featuring authoritative shows, hosts, and guests who take on the tough topics in healthcare with empathy, expertise, and a commitment to excellence. If you're looking for bingeable content related to the healthcare industry, they've got more than 8,000 episodes on demand waiting for you. From professional development, the patient voice, digital health, innovation and entrepreneurship, and of course, health IT, they've got you covered. So this is your official invitation to check them out at healthpodcastnetwork.com. Hey there, and welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. I'm Joy Rios, and today my guest is Dr. Harpreet Nagra. She's the VP of Behavioral Science at OneDrop, which is an AI-powered chronic condition management platform. Dr. Nagra is a woman of color in health IT, helping to merge behavioral science with data science to create a clinically effective digital product that motivates people with diabetes or other chronic conditions to maintain and improve their health. She's also a health equity expert working to ensure their solutions are culturally relevant and motivating to each unique individual. Okay, let's take a listen. Please taking this time to introduce yourself and your piece of the health IT puzzle or where you land in the eco, the healthcare ecosystem. Yeah, by training, I'm a licensed psychologist and a behavioral scientist. And my current role is with OneDrop as the VP of Behavioral Science. And that's a very fancy title for designing and researching clinical programs for the various chronic conditions that we uh, serve on our platform, including diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol, all of those pieces. And in relation to that, uh, my role is to design specific digital interventions to help build folk, help um build and sustain new habits for folks because having a, a chronic condition, as we all know, is almost like having a second or third job. So there's a lot to manage there. I can go into... Does that mean you specialize in changing behaviors? Mm-hmm. Oh, yep. Okay. I definitely want to... I'll let you con- continue, but I definitely want to hit more on that. Well, also give me an idea. Like, Do you want me to talk like in detail about all of these questions and prompts or do you want me to... Do you want it to be like more... 
We can go back and forth. Yeah, if you want, it's fine. If you want to tell me more about your qualifications and training and also like your current position, that's fine too. Or, or we, and, and then probably let's get into behavior change okay. and how, okay, is that okay? Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. So I would say just a little bit more on my background. I started out in undergrad and parts of my early graduate training where I was really hyper-focused on cognitive psychology, where the main focus was to to better understand how people make decisions and what factors go into making those decisions just in terms of how your brain was processing that information. And then, but I I didn't know at that time, because this was a very long time ago, how I would actually apply all of the the skills that I was gaining into a degree where I could earn a living and basically do something with it. It was a very academic type of degree in my mind at that point. So then I switched over to clinical psychology where we're directly learning how to provide clinical, how to deliver clinical skills with a person, have a conversation, how to change behavior in the moment in the one-on-one sessions that we were doing. So I did that for a little, not for a little bit, for a very long time, actually. And during that time, I specialized in chronic illness management. So I started out with focusing on folks who were actually pediatric populations. So kids who were living with epilepsy, who had been diagnosed with cancer, who had like pre-diabetes. And then over time, what I ended up doing is specializing in diabetes psychology specifically. But a lot of the trends were very similar across the way in terms of there wasn't a whole lot of emotional support or psychological support being provided to kids or adults who were living with chronic conditions. And there was a lot of sort of like fragmentation within the healthcare system where the patient would come in and see the doctor for about 15, 20 minutes, and then they wouldn't see them again for another three to four months. And so during that time, that three to four months, there was a lot of just things that would fall by the wayside and all of the the decisions and talking that um, had been done at the doctor's office, they weren't followed through on. And it was a sort of like vicious cycle that I was noticing where everybody wanted this person to get better, including the person themselves, but there weren't enough tools in place to help them get to the changes that they wanted to make for themselves. So I wanted to do something where I was doing something on a larger scale than just the one-on-one work that I was doing. Well, so let's talk about that because how seriously people changing their behavior is such a huge tool and like something that we could all probably benefit from. So what are some of the things that you've learned along your journey that help people? What goes into their decision-making? Because just even after this year, like sometimes we know it's not facts. Like it's not necessarily information or knowing something that will do it. Is it, what is it? Yeah. I think there's a variety of different factors, but I would say from the behavioral science point of view, the biggest thing is what is our choice, our architecture look like? What are the choices that are being offered in our environment? So for example, if somebody's going to offer us an apple versus French fries, especially during the pandemic, majority of us would have selected those French fries because we were feeling stressed and and challenged with all the uncertainty that was happening. So the choice architecture, I think, is a significant factor there because if you don't have those resources available to help you even make those healthier choices, then you're much less likely to engage. The motivation is another 
piece in intrinsic motivation, extrinsic motivation. A lot of digital solutions focus on extrinsic motivation. So giving you a reward for logging a data point in their app or giving you a reward for if you do a challenge of some kind. But the real change, I think, comes from when you uh, can do self-reflective work of what do I need from this? What am I trying to get out of this um, behavior or this health change that I want to be making for myself? So can I tell you something that has been driving me yeah. personally? And it's like super random. And it's, I've been going to the gym. I, I went from working out on my own or just like assuming that taking my dog for a walk counted as exercise, which I don't know. To a degree it does, but not really. But now I'm actively going to the gym regularly, five days a week. I start my day that way. And I realized what I need to be strong enough for. And it happened, had to do, it had to do with my dog. Mm. She got stuck or something happened where she hurt her paw and she didn't want to go down the stairs. And I live alone. And I was like, shoot, she's 90 pounds. She's a 90 pound dog, which means if something were to happen to her, I need to be strong enough to be able to pick her up. And I can't tell you how much motivation it gave me just because to have that realization of where I was from being able to do that to where I need to be. And it's totally made me try harder. At the that gym. is, you know, Joy, that is a very, it's a, a really good example. And I think one of the biggest sort of factors for intrinsic motivation is when we have somebody else that we need to take care of, whether it's, it's a pet or a child or a family member where we know we don't really have anybody else to rely on. We will have to be the person that has to step up. There's This is a random factoid, but there was a study done where they found that parents, actually fathers of small children tend to exercise more because they know that they are going to have to take care of these young kids over time. For some reason, it wasn't as big of a factor for women, but for men especially, that was a driving factor for making healthier choices, uh, lifestyle modifications that they wouldn't otherwise make. So it is definitely a factor there. I love that. Okay, so we've got the architecture of choices, Mm -hmm. intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. What else? Yeah. So I would think a lot of it also has to do with having some sort of a mental model. So this is where things like a sense of self-efficacy, positive sort of self-esteem, basically believing that you can change because you've been able to change your behavior and other aspects of your life. So if you don't have that mental model, if you've never been able to make changes in other areas of your life, whether it's work or family or other relationships, you're not going to know exactly what it takes to make those changes in in relation to your health. But let's say we're introduced to some of those skills or you uh, had role models in your environment or you maybe pushed through and had experiences where you learned how to, let's say, organize yourself at work, then you have a mental model of how to do that. So then you can organize yourself at home and potentially around the health changes that need to be made as well. Okay. I have one more example of something (laughs) that I didn't think was actually possible. Mm -hmm. I um, used to live in San Francisco and there was somebody that was in my social network who would ride her bike. She was just, and she was riding her bike up like across the Golden Gate Bridge and up in Marin and the hills. And I just thought she'd come back and hang out at like happy hour and be like, oh, I rode my bike 50 miles this last Mm -hmm. weekend. And in my mind, that was just like so mind blowing of like, how do you, how does somebody do that? She was a nurse and it was somebody like she, and 
50 miles for people that ride their bikes, that's not hardly anything. I just never tied myself to that was something that I was capable of doing. And once once I realized that she had done it, it made me like buy a bike. And I have to tell you, there's some training groups or whatever. And I've done it twice now, once in 2008, once eight years later. But I joined a group that rode our bikes from San Francisco all the way to Los Angeles. There you go. like... 545 miles on a bike. When you tell that to a lot of people and they're just like, how is that even possible? But once you have the model of, no, you can do it. And here's, break it down into steps. This is what training looks like and whatnot. And anyway, it it is a huge confidence booster at the end of something like that. When you think that something is impossible Mm -hmm. and you change your behaviors and you're like, wow, look what I was able to do. Yeah, as soon as you see that it, that it's possible that there's somebody else who's doing it at the same time or has done it already, then you're able to step up to the next level, whatever that level might be for you. Yeah, no, that's a really good example. Definitely. So on the chronic condition side of things, I imagine it's not as fun of things that people need to do. They what are the types of behaviors that they need to incorporate into their daily lives? Yeah. So I would say there's a a variety of different things. One is when you're initially diagnosed, there's a lot of education that tends to come your way from the healthcare system. I'll give the example with diabetes. You have to know how to your blood sugar. You have to know how to count carbs. You have to know how to, if you're on insulin, how to administer that insulin. So that's a lot of new tasks that you would have to incorporate into your lifestyle that you didn't have to do before. And so within that, you also have to think about how does this fit into my daily schedule? Again, a job and kids and other things going on, other responsibilities in your life, fitting that in, especially because it's going to happen every couple of hours uh, for a person living, let's say with type one diabetes, it's going to happen at every mealtime. It's going to happen every time you feel off, you have to kind of check your blood sugar to know, is it a low blood sugar? Do I need to treat it with something? Is it a high blood sugar? You have to pay attention to those factors. So all that needs to be, a person needs to they need to receive that education up front once diagnosed. And I think over time, what happens, because there's still no cure for type one, unfortunately, over time, what happens is that folks enter like a maintenance phase, they find their groove, they figure out how to do all these things. But the relentlessness of it, the fact that you have to do it day in, day out, it's a 24-7 job and it does not stop. There is no vacation. What that ends up doing is that it potentially puts you at risk for burn. So emotional exhaustion, physical, mental exhaustion from having to think about it, process it. Basically, I've heard from so many folks um, when I was a clinician, every time they look at their meal plate for lunchtime, dinnertime, breakfast, all they see is a bunch of math on the plate because they have to think about how many carbs is every single food item on there because then they have to administer the appropriate insulin that would go with it. So it's a pretty significant. That's got to that's really be an emotional and intellectual toll for people. Yeah, it's a significant cognitive burden, I think, for a lot of folks, knowing the number of decisions that they have to make on a daily basis. There was a, a study done, I believe, at Stanford, where they found that people living with type 1 have to make an additional 150 decisions per day oh, compared yeah. to somebody who does not have type 1. So, yeah, just think about it. It's just, again, it's just a second or third job that you usually did not sign up for. And I think there's also a bunch of societal shame around having a condition like that. Somehow we're blamed for having brought on the diagnosis in some way. How does OneDrop support these 
patients, people. Yeah. So one of the biggest things is that the healthcare system, as I was saying earlier, it really focuses on acute care. It's typically very fragmented. You can only access one specialist at a time. And the focus of OneDrop is to get away from that. Because if you're only seeing your doctor for maybe an hour over the course of one year with, with those 15, 20 minute visits every quarter of the year, there's a, approximately 9,000 hours the rest of the year where you're not meeting with a professional. So during that time, what are you doing to support your health? What are you doing to self-manage and engage in ongoing treatment management? OneDrop provides that sort of all the different tools that you would need in order to support yourself in, in during those 9,000 hours. So we've got precision-based predictive algorithms so that will help you kind of make the reduce that cognitive burden of um, making decisions around what your blood gl- glucose is going to look like in a few hours. We've got health coaching built into the app. So you have somebody who's uh, trained in whether it's diabetes management or a nutrition and dietitians who are very well versed in what how food might be impacting your blood sugars and of course ongoing like in-app content that is updated regularly with whatever the latest clinical recommendations are. So that trifecta of pieces is helping folks recognize that there are behaviors that I can continue to practice, habits that I can continue to practice that will help me keep my health afloat during those in-between periods when I'm not seeing a doctor. So is it in communication with them with notifications and Mm -hmm. things and... Yeah, definitely. It's a sort of a bi-directional process. The more engagement we have in terms of logging, chatting with the coaches, questions the person is asking, the more likely they are to be able to reach their health goals faster, the quicker we can help them build those habits over time. Yeah. That's really cool. I like to ask just because I think it's really fun to know. Did you know what you were going to do when you were 10 years old? (laughs) (laughs) I thought I was going to be a dentist, to be honest. I did not think that I was going to be a psychologist. Being a person of color, being a a female person of color, my options were very different for what I thought was going to happen versus what actually happened. So I I spent a lot of time kind of fighting whatever the restrictions were that were being placed on me. But no, I did not think I was going to be a psychologist or behavioral scientist. At what what point did it change? Was it like an aha moment in college? I thought around high school. So I went to this high school. It was public school. But a lot of the kids that I was surrounded by had parents who were high-level professionals. And I had one person in my class who had a psychiatrist. As that's what their dad did. And I thought, huh, what does a psychiatrist do? So I just I Googled it. I learned more about it. I knew that it would take 10 years or so to become a psychiatrist. And I, I just thought, while wow, the idea of working with somebody's mind is really interesting, I don't know if I want to give medication as the tool to help change how you're thinking and how you're feeling about things. So at that point, I think I started considering what psychology could do for me and the interest that I had. But even at that point, I didn't know if it was going to be psychologist or psychiatrist or something else. And that's why I think I had that sort of meandering uh, career path where I started with cognitive psychology and then switched over to clinical and 
now I'm here. I started out as a psych major thinking that that's what I wanted to do. And I think I took my first psych class and I was like, nope, this isn't it. (laughs) (laughs) I loved my first psych class. It was like a class of, I don't know, 400 people, but it was, it had so much fun in it. Yeah. I remember thinking, I was like, oh, if this becomes my major and I end up having to be, it's funny actually, because I was like, I don't want to necessarily listen to people's problems all day. That's what I was thinking about. I was like, "Uh, it's going to take a lot to take all of that in as a profession. And I just didn't think I was up for it. (laughs) Yeah. So originally I was thinking I'm going to have to sit in a room every single day and have these conversations. That's why I was like, okay, let's do something research-based. And that's why I went into cognitive psychology. But over time, I used to really love the one-on-one conversations. And I think I still do. I shouldn't say that I don't uh, enjoy them. There's something that happens. Having done therapy, having worked with a variety of folks from all walks of life, there's something that happens in that 45 to 50 minute session that is really rewarding to sit with. Seeing the arc of a person's emotional status kind of change, even within the course of 50 minutes is it's really, I don't know, it, it's insightful for me. I think it's from what I've heard from patients, it's helpful for them. And I'm still very glad that I have that toolkit that I, I would not have otherwise. But yeah, I think I, what I wanted to do is, is bring that to a larger scale if I possibly could do that. I love it. I think that's really smart. And I also am curious if considering where you're coming from, women of color who felt like maybe you had barriers to entry to certain like to certain jobs, How did you overcome that? Yeah. So I, even though I'm South Asian, right? I was born in India. I grew up in California and Arizona. Nobody in my family had gone to college. There's usually this model minority myth with Asian Americans that everybody's highly educated or has all the resources, et cetera. My family didn't come from that type of background. So even going to a college, seeking out a college degree was something different and unique. And there was pushback against it because what I was supposed to do was get married at, I don't know, but by the age of 22 and start having a family. And I grew up in California, essentially, like from age nine to 15, we were in California. And I, I just did not subscribe to that idea. So I think the what helped me and what shaped, shaped my psyche around that is, is having other people, mentors, whether it was teachers, uh, coaches, other women of, of color, and just other women around me who were able to say, you can do whatever you want. It's just a matter of you wanting to do it. So if you want to do something, take the steps and see where it lands. So I had a number of points in my career where I would sit down with a mentor. I remember this one particular conversation that I had with my cognitive psychology mentor in undergrad, where I wanted to go to an online psychology degree, basically like a diploma mill. And he said, don't do it. He said, I don't want you to do it. You are capable of more than that. I want you to go to university and get your degree and see where it takes you from there. So he like really redirected where I thought I was supposed to go or what I should have done. And it's people, it's conversations like that, that I remember the most where I think I'm, I should be, I should have a low bar for what I can do. And then whoever I speak to, they elevate me to the next level and they say, no, you can do much more. You just have to believe that you can do much more. I love that. It was your own changing of behavior and beliefs, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think again, it's that it's having that role model, having that person say, this is possible. Other people have done it. So why not try it? Because if you don't try it, then you always have that regret in the back of your mind. 
Did it require any conversations with your parents too to convince them of what was possible for you? Yeah. So my mom actually has, she's from India. She actually has like a fourth grade education and and because it was, her education was stopped after fourth grade because it would require her to go to a, a school outside of the village that they lived in. And at that time, and based off of our culture, it just was not allowed for girls to leave that village um, to go to a different city to gather, get their education. So what I wanted to do for my after, you know, I got I did my bachelor's and my master's in Arizona. I wanted to move to a different place, go to a different state, different program to get my doctorate. And it was actually my mom who was putting up the the biggest barriers to say, no, you cannot do that because she had that experience of people shutting it down. And at that point, I think I was in my, I would say mid twenties around that time, but I had done sort of all the other degrees and, and basically all the other girls in our community who were my age had already gotten married, had families. And she was really worried that I would not find someone or I would be less desirable because I was hated for our community members. But yeah, that was a pretty tough conversation to have because I did, I ended up moving from Arizona to Oregon. I went to the University of Oregon for my doctorate degree by myself. There was no other family around. And this was a big shift for them because girls only leave when once they're married, that's when you move out of your house. You don't move out prior to then. But it was my dad who supported me and said, if she wants to do it, let's try it. But I remember that day very well. My mother was in tears the day that I left. (laughs) And I haven't gone back since because I did end up getting married and having kids, but much later than than previous, than what she had wanted. So I guess to, to that point, how do they feel now? I don't think they understand what I do. Okay. I think they're totally fine and supportive of the work that I do. They understand that I'm a psychologist, but again, psychology is such a foreign concept still in a variety of different contexts. So I don't think they fully comprehend what a psychologist does. They know that I'm a doctor, you know, that official label has occurred. They love my husband. They love the kids. That is something that they relate more okay. to than the career that I have. Gotcha. Well, do you have advice for other women who are maybe in similar positions that as you were? Yeah, I would say a lot of this has to do with knowing who you are and knowing what values and what preferences and where you want to head in life. So that requires a lot of self-reflection and a lot of like personal work, a lot of challenging what your existing thoughts and beliefs are. And for me, some of that came from forcing myself to go to therapy because again, therapy was not something that there was uh, still there is stigma around it. But I think also it came from having those conversations with mentors and others who encouraged me along the way. So I would say, however, whenever you can get to know yourself, because that will help you with all the other decisions that you need to make, whether it's career or family, what responsibilities you take on. It's a lot of tough work, but I think it's very much worth it because without doing it, it's very easy to be persuaded to do things that you may not want to do. I think that's possibly the best advice ever. I, we hear a lot of people talk about like mentorship and things that you can do, but honestly, like understanding and knowing yourself and knowing what drives you and what really matters to you. And I think like that's a lifelong 
one, you'll get returns on that investment for your entire life, but it's also a lifelong journey. It doesn't stop. (laughs) No, it does not. And I would say knowing that, having at least some formation of what those ideas are for me, for who I am as a person, it's helped me not only in deciding what, what jobs I'm going to take on, but it's also helped me during place conflict or other relationship conflict that I've I experienced. It helps me figure out how do I like how do I want to show up in this situation? Am I showing up to according to the person that I think is of value in this situation or I'm not reacting the, the way I want to? Or how can I change up my approach in order to be consistent with who I am as a person? I love that. And it really speaks to being intentional about how you show up. And if you're in a position that you can stop and reflect and, you know, respond in a way that you're doing so because that's how you intend to move forward, not just to be reactionary when life happens to you. It's very much a place of power. Yeah, I would say, especially in leadership positions for women, there's a lot of pushback about, do you really know what you're doing? Or or comments about just credibility, expertise, all of those pieces. And I think that is the key moment where you need to be able to say, no, this is what, what I believe and this is why it's important for, for me. Because I think as like women, it. we are either perceived as being too submissive or too assertive or too aggressive. So I've fallen across on that spectrum. I've been all of those pieces, but I think yeah. at the end of the day, you have to decide what's going to be the right decision for you. And I think that's really important where you have to decide, am I going to be the person who, who makes changes and is assertive along the way, or am I going to allow other people to dictate for me what? I love that. And I also like the idea of not taking the bait just because like somebody like says something or tries to push you in a direction. doesn't Like you don't have to show up for every fight you've been invited. Exactly. I like that one. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So it helps you. That self-reflection piece helps you figure out which fights you're going to show up to because you will have to fight along the way. For sure. I really want to thank you for spending this time with me today. And if our audience wants to get in touch with you or your company, where would you recommend that they go? Yeah. So the name of the company is OneDrop. So you can check us out on OneDrop.today. And then uh, obviously we have an app. So definitely download the app if you're a person living with a chronic condition. There's a number of different supportive resources that I would encourage you to check out on the app where we're still a young company, only about seven years old, but we are updating and making novel changes every single day that I think is quite different from what the chronic illness management community looks like outside of the digital space. Okay. I will definitely make sure that information is included in our show notes. And thank you again for your time. Yeah. Thank you, Joy. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon. This episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird Inc. CMS's Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, or MIPS, is super complex. And if clinicians ignore the program or perform poorly in it, it can result in a hit to their revenue and reputation. Chirpy Bird is proud to say that more than 95% of its clients are exceptional performers in MIPS, meaning they've maximized the score that directly translates into their Medicare reimbursement rate. Chirpy Bird offers their audit-proof services to practices of all sizes through an affordable monthly subscription that includes unlimited access to a regulatory expert who guides them in knowing what data to track, 
how to create workflows that make capturing that data easier and ensures that they submit it all to CMS on time and performing at its best. Contact Chirpy Bird today or learn more at chirpybirdinc.com. That's chirpybirdinc.com.